You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's a cloudy, freezing Friday night in January 2020 in Mainz, a university town in central Germany. Uwe Schein, a doctor and cancer researcher, bikes home from his lab in the dark. He makes a cup of tea and settles in to read the week's medical journals. So my weekend starts with reading papers. Uwe had spent more than 20 years of his life trying to figure out how to use the body's immune system to target and destroy tumors. But tonight, a different disease catches his interest. An ominous new virus is spreading in China. Medical journal The Lancet has just published the first case descriptions for 41 people who'd gotten sick in the city of Wuhan. Ugor notices one thing right away. A new message in this paper was uh, that one of the family members had the disease, yeah, was virus positive, but did not have fever or other symptoms. This was new. The asymptomatic cases meant the virus could spread in secret. The symptoms described in the article are serious. Pneumonia, heart injury, six deaths. Uwer looks up the population of Wuhan. 11 million people, bigger than central London. Then he checks flights between the city and the rest of the world. There are dozens of flights every day. It was extremely highly likely that this is going to be a pandemic. And we started to discuss what we can do. The next morning, he turns to the person he trusts the most, his wife and fellow researcher, Ritzlam Chureci. She's the one who challenges his big ideas, forces him to hone his hypotheses. He spends about an hour showing her what he'd found. They both know the best weapon to fight what's coming will be a vaccine. They'd been testing a new technology using messenger RNA in experimental cancer therapy and had done a lot of lab work on a potential flu vaccine. But neither they nor anybody else had ever used the technology in an approved medicine for humans. After that, it was not about discussing, it was about asking the question, how can we make this happen if we really want to contribute and try to engineer a vaccine? How could this work? They had never even done a patient trial in infectious diseases before, just lab experiments. Nobody knew whether it would work, but they were about to embark on an unprecedented race to find a vaccine against COVID-19. 
we decided to start a program because it was clear it was an obligation to do something. Welcome to the seventh episode of our series. In our last episode, we heard about how researchers Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman worked for decades in relative anonymity to lay the groundwork for getting mRNA into cells. With the pandemic, their work has a chance to make its way to patients far faster than what would have previously seemed possible. This time, we're looking at the remarkable race to speed up development time of a COVID-19 vaccine from the usual decade or so to a head-spinning 10 frenzied months. This is a story about the biggest scientific breakthrough of the pandemic, mRNA vaccines. Now suddenly, vaccines are the world's number one priority, and the race to make them is on. Soon, hospitals and morgues will be filling up. Hundreds of thousands of people are about to die in cities around the globe. Every hour of every day is crucial, as scientists race to do years of work in months. Whoever gets to the finish line first will make a name for themselves as science heroes, victors in a once-in-a-century war with a killer virus. So many lives on the line. And for the drug companies, billions of dollars in profits, too. My name is Naomi Kresge, and I'm a health reporter for Bloomberg News. From the Prognosis Podcast, this is Breakthrough. The story of the COVID vaccine race starts with a pair of young biotech companies. One is BioNTech, led by Uwar Shaheen and Erzlem Turechi, whom we just met. The other is Moderna, founded by Derek Rossi, the stem cell researcher we met in our last episode, and led by a charismatic Frenchman named Stéphane Bancel. Unlike BioNTech, which had mostly been a cancer company prior to the pandemic, Moderna was able to build on a lot of prior work in infectious disease. Here's Stefan, the CEO. We have been working on mRNA for 10 years. Uh, we have been working on infectious disease vaccine uh, for most of those 10 years. Moderna had started patient trials on nine other potential vaccines against other infectious diseases before this pandemic vaccine. So this was not new to us. We'd been working on it a lot. In 2017, Moderna had started working with the U.S. government to design vaccines. The project included MERS, a coronavirus that had hit Saudi Arabia and other countries. In the fall of 2019, Stefan briefed officials from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, known as NIAD, on a factory the company had built in Massachusetts. It could produce new vaccines in just 60 days. Stefan invited the government officials to tour the facility. Sensing some skepticism, he offered to do a test run for a hypothetical pandemic. The agency would send Moderna the genetic sequence for an emerging viral disease. Moderna would see how fast it could get a vaccine ready. The agency was about to pick a virus to use. When along came SARS-CoV-2. It was a perfect test case. So... We were made aware of the virus between Christmas and New Year of 2019. 
uh, we got the sequence from the Chinese government you know, January the 10th put online. By the 13th of January, we had the vaccine design lockdown on the computer. It was all in silico. We never touched the physical virus. Here, it's helpful to step back for a minute and review what distinguishes mRNA vaccines from conventional shots. In the old way of doing things, vaccines introduce dead or weakened bits of virus into the body, priming the immune system to recognize and destroy the real thing. Messenger RNA vaccines work differently. They contain a template that cells will use to make the bits of viral protein themselves, essentially turning the body's own cells into vaccine-making factories. The differences also extend to manufacturing. Conventional vaccines are grown inside live cells. Some even use chicken eggs. Messenger RNA vaccines don't need any of that. Making them is a chemical process, a little bit like cooking. Mix the ingredients together and you get the vaccine. That may sound simple, but it isn't. Stefan told us that going from theory to actual drug maker seemed like a long shot when he quit his previous job to join Moderna. But if it's going to work, it will change medicine forever. Pre-pandemic, BioNTech had been mostly focusing on cancer. One thing its scientists were able to do in those early days was pull off a method for developing rapid, personalized versions of mRNA vaccines based on cancer patients' individual tumors. So we had a technology where we could use our vaccine platform to come up with a new vaccine within a few weeks. This is another really important point about mRNA vaccines. The technology itself took decades to refine. But within that framework, designing a vaccine to target a particular pathogen is actually really quick. Before mRNA vaccines came along, the fastest vaccine project ever was in 1967 when drug company Merck & Co. licensed a shot for mumps. That took four years. The scientist who led the project, Maurice Hilleman, swabbed his sick five-year-old daughter's throat in order to get the lab specimen he needed to make the shot. With mRNA vaccines, you don't have to do anything like that. You don't need swabbed samples. All you need is the genetic code of the virus. Catalin Carrico the pioneering researcher who left academia to work at BioNTech says this, and the advent of the internet, gives researchers a leg up. You know, you, you are very young, so you don't remember, but how long it took like for HIV to set up a test to recognize who is infected or recognizing that is it a virus? I mean, it took so long because the technology was not advanced. In minds. Uwur and Ertzlem get a slightly later start than their U.S. rival. They have their kitchen table conversation about committing to a COVID vaccine a few weeks after Moderna's already working on the vaccine design. But they start moving quickly, too. The day after their decision to start work on a vaccine, Uwur calls a series of meetings with his manufacturing team, preclinical testing team, and business development team. They crowd into his office in Mainz. It's a simple room with a desk, conference table, some family pictures tacked onto a bulletin board. It's on the same hallway as the labs. He asks everyone to start planning how they can divert resources away from their other projects 
to a new full court press COVID vaccine push. On this Monday, I had five or six meetings with different teams. And we had the day thereafter a board meeting yeah, uh, to discuss how this can be supported by other board members. That same day, the first COVID case is confirmed in Germany. It's a 33-year-old man living near Munich. He works at an auto parts company. He had just been in a meeting led by a colleague who was visiting from China. Uwe assigns 25 people to work on a potential vaccine, setting up shifts that run through evenings and weekends. It's basically a 24-7 operation. We had to reduce the timelines. We tried to figure out how to do that. And in principle, we came up with a number of really innovative strategies. One was doing things in parallel instead of doing it sequentially. It's a risky but time-saving decision. Usually, companies don't prepare for a patient trial until they have a potential drug to test. But Uwur's teams start working on getting trials ready to go already. They figure they can add the details about the vaccine that's going to be used once they have it. They start making multiple candidates. You need to do a lot of detailed paperwork before you can test any kind of drug on people. So Ugor also gets in touch with German clinical trial authorities. He knows them well because of BioNTech's work with cancer vaccines. He asks them for a meeting. Usually it takes three months to get a meeting date. Yeah? So I called them and asked if we could come up just, just uh, the other day. And, <laughs> and they said, first of all, prepare a briefing book. Yeah? And if you manage that, you can come next week. So Ugor's team works night and day to write an 80-page document describing their would-be COVID vaccine project. They agreed to our plan. The only, only challenge was they wanted to see a toxicology trial, which usually takes six months. Yeah. And we wanted to start in April. Yeah. We were, so we were uh, beginning February, uh, and they requested to have a tox study. And we had to figure out how to do the talks in, in less, than, less than three months. And the team figured that out. Moderna is also doing things in parallel, setting up the next steps for bigger trials before the early ones are done. By February 24th, 2020, 42 days after it started, the company ships the first batch of vaccine to NIAD. Remember, that's the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Like BioNTech, they are relying on close partnership with regulators. Unlike BioNTech, they have a direct government partnership. The National Institutes of Health is the co-developer of the vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration is taking their calls at all hours of the night into the weekend, Stefan says. I think one of the uh, heroes of, of this remarkable scientific achievement of 2020 is the FDA. Uh, because you know, usually through the, the processes set up by the agency, you know, it will sometimes take months to get an answer to a question. Well, here we had answers on question 24-7. With the NIH to help them, Moderna moves forward without a big pharma partner. For BioNTech in Germany, that's not the case. Ugor and Erzlem know they can't run the huge clinical trials needed for approval on their own. 
neither do they have the kind of global distribution you'd need to ship a vaccine all around the world. To succeed, they need a sponsor with deep pockets. Ugor picks up the phone and calls his contact at Pfizer, the drugs behemoth based in New York. The companies had already made a deal in 2018 to work together on an mRNA flu vaccine. Phil Dormitzer, chief scientific officer for viral vaccines at Pfizer, remembers that call. Ugor wanted to transfer people who were working on flu to the new virus. Really just swapping out the influenza uh, antigen coding sequences and swapping in the SARS-CoV-2 antigen coding sequences uh, because we, we'd like to be really out in front of uh, this uh, new disease that's uh, broken out in uh, Wuhan, China. Remember when I said vaccine makers no longer needed live cells or swabbed samples to build vaccines, but that all you need is the genetic code of the virus? That's what Phil is talking about here. And this is a big deal. BioNTech might not have had ongoing human trials with infectious disease vaccines, but they were already working in the area. Padelin explains how far along the flu work already was. We were advancing those studies, animal studies, monkey studies were finished, and we were just there to request authorities for, for the permission. All of a sudden, instead of influenza, we switched over to, to corona. By March 2nd, they have 20 vaccine candidates that could spur a strong immune response against the virus in lab animals and cell culture experiments. That day, Ugor calls Katrin Jansen, Pfizer's head of vaccine research and development, and Phil's boss. It doesn't take long to convince her. You know, I remember there was a call on which Ugor and Katherine Jansen, who, who leads uh, vaccine research and development at Pfizer, um, and, and I spoke about this. And they said, well, go write a work plan. <laughs> so I literally, overnight, typed up a work plan. What are the things that we would do? The plan goes to Albert Burla, Pfizer's CEO. Albert basically said, we are going all in on this, that this is clearly uh, an emergency. And Albert said, in this circumstance, we need to divert resources and do whatever is needed to bring the vaccine forward. So his expectations of timelines were far faster than anything that, that, that uh, we would have imagined before. Meanwhile, the FDA signs off on Moderna's plans for a trial in humans. Stefan's team injects its first volunteers on March 16th. About a month later, on April 23rd, BioNTech and Pfizer start their human trial in Germany. Less than two weeks after that, a U.S. trial begins. I think we were the only company which really started without ever having ever tested their, their platform in infectious disease. And uh, we were also the only company which tested multiple candidates in parallel. Ugor's talking about shoehorning in one more science experiment. He wants to test four different potential vaccines in the first human study to see which one is the best. It's risky because it could delay development. Moderna's already picked the full spike for its vaccine. But Ugor wants to try to optimize their shot as much as possible before they give it to thousands of people. The question is whether to make a vaccine based on only a piece of the virus's spike or the whole thing. Picking the right bit of the protein for the vaccine could potentially make a big difference in how well it works. 
And you could find in the literature arguments for both and against both. Yeah? And uh, so we said, let's test both yeah? and uh, get the clinical data, get the preclinical data and, and get the answers. In July, both Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech team announced early data showing their vaccines can produce antibodies in people. BioNTech's first data is for the version of the vaccine that made only one part of the spike protein, something called the RBD domain. It's good data. The clock is ticking. Some people want to move forward with that version of the shot right away. We had a lot of pressure from the uh, clinical teams just to go ahead with the RBD domain. His teams insist on waiting for the data from the full spike to see whether it might wind up making a safer or more effective vaccine. They have to move fast. While the pandemic has ebbed in some places, like Germany, the U.S. is in the middle of a summer surge, about to hit 150,000 COVID deaths. Experts warn that another wave will probably come in the fall. They rush blood samples from volunteers to labs in Germany and the U.S. The safety data shows that the full spike vaccine is even better than the partial spike. It might cause fewer side effects, gives a better immune response too. So on July 24th, they decide to go with that one. Remarkably, three days later, on July 27th, both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech start the huge clinical trials necessary to win regulatory approval. There are tens of thousands of volunteers. Their real-life experience will show whether the vaccines can work outside the confines of a lab, whether they can make a dent against the virus in real life. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. That summer, 
Moderna also gets $1 billion in funding from Operation Warp Speed, the Trump administration's effort to hurry along vaccine development. The money is allocated via BARDA, the Biochemical Advanced Research and Development Authority. I think this is uh, one story that is not talked about enough, is uh, what BARDA and then Operation Speed did by you know, sponsoring six companies, uh, giving us the financial resources to take a lot of business risk. Pfizer doesn't take U.S. government funding, although the partners sign a $1.95 billion contract to sell 100 million doses to the U.S. government if the shot works. That's its own form of security. Moderna has its own deal for 100 million doses for about $1.5 billion. And BioNTech takes German government funds. They need the money to build a factory. They've never had to manufacture for millions of people before. They search Germany and find an old Novartis vaccine factory in Marburg, close to Frankfurt. They close on the site in the fall and work on retrofitting it for mRNA manufacturing. But there's a problem with making a key part of the vaccine. Ugor and Katherine Jansen talked about this earlier this year at a conference hosted by health news website, STAT. Yes, that, that was indeed the, the low point. So we had an effective vaccine. We wanted to, to produce 100 million doses, and then it turned out that one of the components yeah, did not work uh, as, as expected. The problem was with lipid nanoparticles. These are tiny bubbles of fat that work like a protective coating for the vaccine. They keep the body's enzymes from destroying it before it can make its way to a cell. The lipid issue that we faced at one time, that threw a real monkey wrench in it. So not only did we have to keep the program on track, we had to have a significant number of our colleagues, you know, working through it and trying to understand it. They had originally said that if the vaccine worked, they could make 100 million doses in 2020. Because of the manufacturing issues, they had to scale that back to 50 million doses. Well, we faced enormous challenges, like in, in, every, in every development program, a vaccine development program, you have enormous challenges. And the difference why we usually those challenges occur over 10 years. Here, the same challenges occur for nine months. By this point, they're working nonstop to solve the manufacturing problems. But the biggest question is still open. Just how well does the vaccine work? The answer will come in the huge study that Pfizer is running. They've expanded it to more than 45,000 patients, people all around the world who have volunteered to get two shots in the arm without knowing whether what's in the syringe is a vaccine or just a placebo. Then they'll go out and live their lives and see whether they catch COVID. If they get symptoms, the test will show whether it's the virus. The researchers themselves also don't know who got the vaccine and who didn't. It's just a matter of time, waiting to see how many people get sick. And all around, the COVID pandemic is getting worse. The second wave is happening. Europe heads back into lockdown. In the US, the death toll hits 200,000 people in September. In only two months, another 50,000 people die. How we're not in a good place uh, for a couple of reasons. Cases surging in nearly every state, more than 82,000 new cases in just 24 hours. In this country, 
alas, as across much of Europe, the virus is spreading even faster than the reasonable worst-case scenario of our scientific advisors. It's Sunday, November 8th, almost 10 months after the Sunday morning when Özlem and Ugor had talked about whether to tear up their company plan and chase after a COVID vaccine. They're waiting in their apartment for Pfizer CEO Albert Burla to call. They're on edge. They've heard that the independent panel of experts that's monitoring the trial is reviewing the results. They're expecting the panel's verdict at any moment. We both were very tense the entire day. There was still the scenario that would be uh, no efficacy at all. Yeah, And remember that, that uh, Ugo understood that I, I, I was worried. And uh, he, he said, you know, it does not matter what we hear uh, later uh, today. Uh, it might well be that does not look good. But anyway, it was worth it. And it was our moral obligation to at least try it. Finally, at 8 p.m., the phone rings. Albert is on the line. They put him on speaker. He said, do you want to know the results? And I said, no. <laughs> I realized already from his voice that uh, there would be a positive message. But neither of them were prepared for just how good the results would be. Uwer told me he was expecting efficacy in the range of 70% to 80% against the virus. They have to hit at least 50% for the vaccine to be considered viable for the market. What they get is well above 90%. This was incredible. Yeah, this was uh, just breathtaking. And at that, in this moment, we understood, hey, there's a vaccine for mankind. And corona is, is a problem that can be solved. Across the Atlantic... Phil Dormitzer is sitting in his apartment close to Pfizer's office when he gets a similar call. He's sitting in the small room where he does his work Zoom calls. And because there's an embargo on this information, nobody can know because nobody is supposed to trade on the announcement. His lips are sealed. Once I found out, I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, this was, this was highly confidential material information until it was announced publicly. I couldn't, couldn't tell my wife. I couldn't tell anybody. So, so it, 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 was, it was actually a, a quiet moment. <laughs> he has to keep quiet for less than a day. On Monday, November 9th, at 6.45 a.m. in New York, Pfizer and BioNTech send out their press releases and break the news to the world. Trials carried out by the U.S. pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German manufacturer BioNTech suggest they have created a coronavirus vaccine which is more than 90% effective. Uh, it is a, a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity. Sort of like the, a bright ray of sun pushing all the clouds away. The good news is that science that has given us the vaccines that we have have been a spectacular success story. We probably all remember the moment we learned a vaccine is coming, and it's almost certainly going to work. Since this is Bloomberg, I'll put it into financial terms. 
that Monday, the vaccine news sent stocks around the world soaring by more than $1.8 trillion. After months of uncertainty, people see a way out of the pandemic. There are also some skeptical voices. That first press release doesn't have all the details. The results are preliminary, but it looks really, really good. The researcher who helped start it all, Catalin Carrico, gets the news in Pennsylvania. She'd been stuck in the U.S. while the vaccine was being developed, running her lab in Germany via video chat after being in Pennsylvania on a visit with her husband when countries closed their borders. She tells CNN's Chris Cuomo she was confident the shot would work. I heard you celebrated with an entire bag of chocolate-covered peanuts. Yeah, it was Gruber. Yeah, that's my favorite. But, you know, I am not the kind of exuberant person who, yeah. This is nice. In Philadelphia, Drew Weissman breathes a huge sigh of relief. He'd been nervous that great results in animals wouldn't translate. Remember how he said mice lie and monkeys exaggerate? I, I got it in the press release with everybody else. Um, so I, I was very nervous. I was nervous because we've worked on probably 20 different RNA vaccines for influenza, norovirus, uh, HIV, a, a bunch of different diseases. and. In just about every one of them, we had 100% protection in our animal models. So I, I was nervous because I was worried that the, that the human vaccine might be 50% effective, and we wouldn't know why, and we wouldn't understand why. So when I heard they were 95% effective, I was happy, because that meant we saw in humans what we had seen and everything from mice to pigs to chickens to macaques to every animal we tried. A week later, on November 16th, Moderna announces its vaccine had been 94.5% effective in a similar huge trial. After more analysis, Pfizer bumps up its trial results to 95%. From there, you know the story. The FDA and other regulators around the world clear the vaccines for sale. That jumpstarts a global race to get enough shots. The vaccines will almost certainly be this year's best-selling drugs. The Pfizer-BioNTech shot is on track for $36 billion in sales. Moderna had to scale back its targets because of problems getting all the vaccines it made into vials and out to customers. But still, it's aiming for up to $18 billion in sales. The vaccines can't end the pandemic all by themselves. Another wave is rolling across the Northern Hemisphere and a new highly mutated variant called Omicron has just emerged. Our ability to deal with both will be hampered by significant pockets of unvaccinated people who don't trust a shot that was developed so fast. People still need masks. Countries with enough doses to go around are rolling out booster shots to top up immunity that seems to fade slightly at around the six-month mark. The vaccines are also increasingly being approved for kids. Lower-income countries are in an even tighter spot as wealthier places gobble up the available doses. But, as Ugor said, the shots have shown us the light at the end of the tunnel. 
And if they need to be altered to deal with the Omicron variant, that should be possible within a matter of months. On December 18th, Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman go together to get vaccinated. Pennsylvania Hospital had started giving shots two days before. And we are collaborating ever since, you know, we met at the Xerox machine. They had come full circle. We were waiting uh, the healthcare workers in, the, in line there to get their vaccine. And, you know, they clapped and then, then I cried. It was exactly what she had wanted. Why she left academia to take the job at BioNTech. The chance to see her research help people. Next week on Breakthrough, we'll talk about what researchers like Catalan and Derek were originally hoping to do with mRNA, cure diseases. We'll look at whether success against COVID is just the first step toward helping people with everything from cancer to multiple sclerosis and malaria. Wherever protein is needed, it can be applied. That could be 6,000 genetic diseases, oncology, cancer, mutated genes. This episode of Prognosis Breakthrough was written and reported by me, Naomi Kresge. Topher Forges is our senior producer. Carl Kevin Robinson Jr. is our associate producer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Hannes Brown. Emma Court and Bob Langreth contributed reporting. Rick Schein is our editor. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review. It helps others find out about the show. Thanks for listening. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.